This is Luke 3, 15 through 20. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Thank you, thank you. Let's pray together, church. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that uh, we hear from you through it. We, we know, Lord, it is living and it is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword and it cuts uh, to our very hearts. And so, God, I pray for these next few moments. As we open your word, would you teach us? Would you mold us? Would you shape us into your image? Would you use your word? Would you use the ministry and the preaching here of John the Baptist to God's people uh, to rattle us a little bit out of our everyday and out of our normalcy to see who you are, God, to see your grace, the good news of the gospel that's poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins. And so we trust you today and love you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Y'all may have a seat. Ashley, could you hand me that water real quick? <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> well, if you have your Bibles, grab them, open to Luke. We're going to be walking through just five verses today with the remaining time that we have before we go enjoy a potluck. Um, if you're new with us, welcome. We are journeying through Luke's gospel. So we're taking our time. We're going slowly because um, there's so much here. There's so much rich, richness in Luke's gospel. And so we're only gonna get through five verses today. And just to catch you up, uh, maybe if you haven't been with us or you're new with us for the first time or for the f- first few weeks, uh, Luke's gospel has begun. We heard the prophecies of John the Baptist, this one that was going to come. He was going to be born. He was gonna be the forerunner. We learned of Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, Joseph, Jesus has been born. Uh, John the Baptist has been born. We got a little snapshot of Jesus as a child um, during a Passover and him in the temple. And now uh, we have Luke describing for us uh, what is very monumental, what is very important in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. That is the forerunner. Uh, That's the ministry of John the Baptist, who we just read about. So he is kind of in part two of his sermon, if you will, in the wilderness. And so what we're going to see here in this third chapter, what we saw at the beginning is that the spotlight has been on John. It's been on John the Baptist, and he's come on preaching. There's been 400 years of silence for God's people. They've been waiting and longing for God to speak, that a prophet would come and speak. And there's been 400 years of waiting, and now there's one that has come on the scene, and he begins to proclaim the word of God. And so all of these people begin to gather around him. And what we're going to notice in Luke's gospel, as, he, as he's writing this in these opening chapters, is the spotlight is on John, but after this moment, it's going to shift. 
The spotlight will dim and go off of John the Baptist, and then it will shine brightly on the Lord Jesus Christ. You saw it happen uh, with Zechariah. We saw it happen. There was a moment where we learned about him. The spotlight shifted and the story moved on. There was a spotlight on Mary and Joseph. It dimmed and now it goes on to John the Baptist. It's gonna dim until we get to the one whom we have all been waiting for. But this is an important moment as John is preparing the hearts of God's people. We said it last week that John the Baptist, his ministry, his style, how he says things is like sandpaper. He's roughing up the surface of our hearts and our minds so that we are ready to have the truth of the good news of the gospel land on us and stick and not just be lip service and not just be uh, play religion not just be, uh, let's just be nice people and get along, but the actual life-giving, saving grace of the good news of the gospel would hit our hearts and our hearts would be ready. So that's the ministry of John the Baptist. And as we understand that the spotlight is moving off of him and going to Jesus shortly, we're going to realize the very strategic and significant message that John has uh, for God's people and the purposes of redemption as he's readying a people. Uh, so who is this guy, John? Matthew's gospel gives us a little bit more context, gives us a little more details about this guy. Uh, Matthew's gospel tells us he's this striking individual, John is. Uh, he, he wears strange things. He has, it's described that he has clothes of camel hair. Okay, like, oh, okay, that's a little weird. Yeah, it was even weird then. They're like, he's wearing camel's hair. He's got these leather belts all around his waist. He had a steady diet of locusts and honey. And he lives out in the wilderness around the areas of Judea and he's proclaiming a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, you're like, wow, this is, a, this is quite a character. He's, he's kind of, uh, he's strange. There's no other way to put it. There's like all these strange things that surround him. He wears strange clothes. He's in a strange location. And yet at the same time, there's all of these people that are coming out to hear from him. And so he, as, as you look at what he's doing, he seems like he's a very successful preacher, Right, because crowds are going out into the middle of nowhere to hear this guy that looks weird. He's saying really difficult things. He's not candy coating anything. He's eating a weird diet. It's probably paleo, so it's maybe probably pretty healthy, but he's strange no matter how you cut it, right? But in terms of successful ministries, he seems successful because he's drawing all of these crowds and it's not because of he's in a wonderful location. Uh, it's not like he just got a brand new building and there's like, oh, let's go check out John's uh, new thing that he's got going on. He's in the middle of nowhere. Um, he's in the desert wilderness. He's in this desert reason, it's region. It's not like there's some conference on the, uh, on, on the shore somewhere and it's like this wonderful place to be and there's gonna be all these programs for uh, every age group so that everything's taken care of. No, it's like difficult to get there. It's, the message is difficult to hear as we heard last week and yet here they come. One commentator describes John's location and says, the exact location where John was preaching was hot, uninhabited depression, wild in every way and removed from civilization. It would be like Houston without all the buildings and people, I guess, right? 
right now. Yeah, it's just so hot. Why is anyone out here? It's, it's just, why, why is anyone going out there? It wasn't a lovely place. It wasn't a comfy place. Um, there was no great event. There was no great um, marketing sort of vehicle, but yet droves of people from all walks of life came out to hear John preach in the wilderness. The strange man with a harsh, almost bristly message. Repent for the forgiveness of sins. Come and be baptized because there's one that's coming whom we've been waiting for. But this should elicit in our minds a question. Why would anyone go out here to hear this individual? Why is anyone doing this? What, what, what's happening here? And one of the things that I've been thinking about is, is people are coming out there not simply because John was just saying things. It's, but it's because he had something to say that was given to him. And what was it that he was given to say? Uh, John's gospel, it's confusing. I'm gonna reference John's gospel. That's not John the Baptist. So it's John's gospel records what, what he was given to say when he's describing John the Baptist. And it says this in John chapter one. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And here we have this expectant and we have this crowd that's wondering what's happening, what he will say. And this crowd full of religious people, uh, Sadducees and Pharisees, many of them knew their Old Testament. They knew their Bible. And they began to see a striking resemblance to this guy in the wilderness who's preaching, who's bringing this hard message with the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament as they were students of their Bibles. And Elijah, we could, uh, we could go back and forth, but just a quick recap. Elijah comes on the scene as a prophet of God, and he is calling his listeners, those that are hearing him, to make an urgent decision. Either continue to follow the false gods whom you have bowed to worship, or you follow and believe in the one true God. And so Elijah's ministry was driving to a decision, the absolute necessity to make make a decision about who you will follow and who you will believe as your one true God, your center, your true north, the one whom has, uh, is everything to you, who made you, who sustains you, who keeps you, who covers you, who is your refuge. Elijah says, believe in the one true God, not all these false gods. And all these people in the wilderness are like, this guy is a lot like Elijah. And in the same way, John the Baptist steps onto the stage in human history. And he doesn't tickle anyone's ears. There's no self-help message here. Uh, he doesn't uh, just tell everyone what they want to hear in these gathering big crowds. And he's not trying to look for a, a platform. He's not trying to uh, build a great following. He's not trying to build influence. He's doing what the Lord called him to do. And he's preparing the way for one to come. Um, most of what he says 
If you remember at the very beginning of his message, remember last week, he starts off his message. He doesn't say, hey, welcome to church. So glad you're here. Uh, come on in and find a, a comfy place to sit down. He, he, he opens up the message. He says, you brood of vipers. Basically, you snakes in the grass. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, it is jarring. It's like, what? The things that he says sting, and they almost sound rude. Um, and unless we really understand why he's saying that and the authority which, with which he speaks, we today are tempted to just to turn a deaf ear to it, to sort of turn it off. It's like, oh, it's a crazy guy in camel's fur in the wilderness, and let's move on to the good stuff. We're tempted to just sort of turn it off. But here we learn and discover that he is a preacher of God's word. That God had put the word, of, word in the hearts and minds of individuals throughout history. And here he is a preacher and a prophet. He is the last prophet, in fact, of the Old Testament before the fulfillment has come and Jesus comes. And so he's, he is tasked with the unique and at times awful and dreadful predicament to stand up in front of a group of people and say, this is what God has to say. This is what God thinks. That's a terrifying predicament. And what's a preacher supposed to preach? What is, what's he supposed to be saying? What is his message? Well, he's supposed to preach and proclaim good news. And that's what the text tells us that he does, that we read earlier. And it's no surprise that the word tells us that John the Baptist was a gospel preacher. For the word gospel simply means good news. In verse 18, he tells us that's exactly what he did. And Luke goes on and he tells us in verse 18 that, that, that he actually, John did a lot of preaching that's not recorded here. That's not recorded anywhere. But he, he, was, he was preaching the good news And that's what he was doing. He was engaging in the proclamation of the good news. The Greek word is euangelion, and it means to proclaim good news. And let's look at what this good news proclamation is all about today. I want to draw our attention to three things with the time that we have. And it's all about uh, how John does this, and it's remarkable. Notice the first thing. John was aware of the expectations of the people with whom he spoke to. He was aware and he knew the crowd that he was speaking to. He was aware of what they, what they were hoping the, that he would answer for them when he showed up. In other words, he wasn't coming on the scene answering a bunch of questions that no one was asking. He was aware of his context. He was aware of the people whom he was preaching to. That's in verse 15, as these people came expectant, ready to hear something. He was aware that all of these people had in their hearts, they were wondering about something because it seemed like this guy, John, this crazy guy in camel's hair, eating locusts and honey, would be answering the questions that they'd been asking for all of these years of silence. Silence, 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 and then on the scene breaks into this, this, this scene, this, this guy John, and he's a character, and all the crowds are like, is he gonna answer the questions we've all been wanting and needing to hear? 
And they, they were probably uh, talking amongst themselves and like many of y'all do when you're talking of theology and you're talking of the things of the Lord and you have gospel conversations around the dinner table with your children or with your friends or with maybe even your neighbors where you're, 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 you're speculating or you're wondering and you're hoping for and you're digesting all these things. I'm sure some of them were saying Malachi 3 has got to mean something because they knew their Bible. Malachi, the last prophet before the silence happened of 400 years, Malachi 3 says this, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. They knew this prophecy that God was going to send a messenger, that he will prepare the way before the coming of Messiah. Malachi 3 says that. And can you imagine every generation uh, following all the silence would grow up saying, perhaps it's gonna happen in my generation. Perhaps he's coming now. Perhaps he's coming soon. And here, this figure, John the Baptist, stands on the stage in this moment in human history. And the, and the crowd, these great crowds go out into the Judean wilderness and they have this distinct notion that something is happening here. God is doing something. God is speaking. And John, he comes on the scene and he appears so suddenly and he comes uh, so hard. He comes, he's, the way that he's denied all of the pleasures, he doesn't do the things that most people do. He's clear in his call to repentance. He's unbelievably forceful in calling the children of Abraham to be baptized, that their need to be baptized is right now because there's one that's coming that will provide the forgiveness of their sins. And in all of this speculation of who this guy is, as the crowds are pressing in, they begin to say, is this guy the Messiah himself? Maybe he's the one. Maybe he's the one. So that's the first observation, is that John was clear about the expectations of those that he was preaching to. And secondly, he was very clear in his presentation. So he knew the expectations. He knew what people needed answered. And then he was very clear in his presentation to his people, to his audience. Um, he was so crystal clear and so concise. Me, not so much. Sometimes you're like, I don't know where he's going. He's going too long. He's better than me, okay? John the Baptist is a way better preacher than me. But this could be a whole preacher thing. You could learn a lot here. But you guys have gotten used to me, so we'll just kind of deal with it, right? But as you read your Bible, we'll find and we begin to understand that the Bible is always perfectly clear. All the cloudiness that we have and all the questions and all the things that we have uncertainty to do has more to do with us than it does with the Bible. The Bible is always clear. It just makes us feel uncomfortable, and so we try to skirt around it. The Bible is a self-interpreting book, and the Holy Spirit then makes it clear to us. And so when, uh, when they were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ, is he the one? Is he the Messiah? John answers them clearly. Um, 
And he says, okay, I know the question buzzing around the crowd. And in this moment, this is remarkable to me. In this moment, there's all these people There's all this buzz. Maybe he's the one. Maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the one we've been waiting for. He could have grabbed influence. He could have grabbed more popularity. He could have grabbed more people. He could have started quite a following and everyone could have just followed him through the wilderness and all these people would just be hanging on every word he had to say because he was quite the character. And so he had this moment where he could have grasped prestige and grasp fame and grasp popularity and grasp power even so to speak, all these things uh, that we have this human longing for were right there in front of him. Are you the Christ? And he does something remarkable. He establishes and proclaims his inferiority right here. Verse 16. I baptize with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming in the strap of whose sandal I'm not even worthy to untie. Now that should take your breath away. Because that is so countercultural. Anyone who's gathering a large crowd in our day that says, leverage that moment, seize that moment, build upon that moment. There's whole church conferences about how to grow big churches and how to get big crowds and how to do X, Y, Z. If you do this, 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 and the other, then all these people will show up and you can, all the things, right? He doesn't follow that playbook. It doesn't even cross his mind. He establishes his inferiority When all these people are pressing in, they want to interview. Who are you? Where have you come from? What are you saying? Are you the Messiah? He he doesn't grasp that power and make himself propped up. Uh, He says, I am absolutely inferior. I was thinking about that word inferior this week and how immediately when I say that, we're all like, oh, I don't like that word. It's like an immediate a negative response, like almost instantly. We're like, no one ever wants to be called inferior, like ever. Like if someone's like, has a talk, your boss, well, I just wanna let you know you are inferior in this way and this way. It's just like so insulting of a word of a, and of a concept because we have this thing in us where we don't ever like to say that someone else is better than us at something. It's just this this prideful arrogance that sort of wells up uh, in all of us. And John doesn't, doesn't, it almost seems like he doesn't really view it as negative. We all kind of know the inferiority complex, and that's a very negative thing. But what about feeling inferior when we should? What about being honest enough in moments that we can just open-handedly say, I'm not as good as you. And that's okay. And that's what he says. He says, let me tell you exactly where I am inferior in terms of my identity. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one that you've been waiting for. I'm inferior in all of my activity because even my baptism, my baptism of water is subservient to the baptism that he's gonna usher in for you. I'm inferior even in my activity. 
and you look throughout the rest of the gospels, you'll discover that John begins to place himself in the background on purpose. He knows his place. Church, do we? Um, do I? He's, in, in a wedding analogy, which by the way, we're planning our very first wedding we're gonna have here in October, which is really exciting. So we're talking to the bride and the groom and the, or those that are, are going to be the bride and groom and planning out all the details. And John, in a wedding analogy, views himself not as uh, the groom. He views himself as the best man, Right? Because there's a big difference. So the, the, the bridegroom gets the bride. We understand that. Um, it's all about them. It's all about a spotlight on the bride. And she walks down in that white dress. And the, the bridegroom stands in the front and he receives her. But the best man is just in charge of just handing them off. There's like one simple step, right? The best man, no matter how best he is, he shows up and then he clears off. That's his job. He prepares the way to get out of the way, to prop up that which is the most beautiful. The best man, a bad best man, is like a bad master of ceremonies. We have all maybe been a part of those weddings. You're like, oh no, here goes the best man speech and he just keeps droning on and on and maybe there's uh, one too many and it's like, that was inappropriate and is he still saying that? Oh my goodness. And it's like cringy all over the place and you just wish he would just move on. That's a bad best man, right? And that every opportunity he tells you something else about himself rather than pointing to this great bride and groom who the Lord is bringing together. And this is exactly the picture the scripture uses to describe John the Baptist. In John 3, 29 through 30, it says this, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Isn't that beautiful? There's a fundamental principle in all of life right there. He must increase. Whatever it is you're doing, church, whatever God has called you to, whatever your vocation is, whatever you're doing today, tomorrow, and the next day, don't take it as an opportunity to amass glory to yourself. Our thought should be whatever audience I might have, it would be for the purpose so that he might increase and I might decrease. There's one more powerful than me coming. There's one better than me that's coming who answers all of your longings, who can bring the forgiveness that you so desperately need. In the middle of verse 16, he even doubles down on his inferiority about this one that is coming. And he says, I'm not even worthy to untie the, the, the thongs of his sandals. Now, this goes back into uh, the cultural day. They had servants uh, that would work in the homes. And one of the most menial, uh, lowly responsibilities of the lowest of the totem pole would be for one of the servants to have to untie uh, the sandals of whose home that they were serving. 
because their feet were nasty, it was grimy, it was like, it was the lowest of the low responsibilities. And most house masters would never make their servants do it because it was so vile. It was so demeaning to have to sit down and take the shoes off of these feet. And John says, I'm not even worthy to start at the point that's considered the most menial task with this one that's coming. And then he speaks about his baptism versus the baptism to come in the same way. He anticipates a greater baptism that's to come through the Lord Jesus Christ. John's like, I just baptized with water. There's one that's coming, the Lord Jesus. He's gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's pointing to Jesus. He is greater. He's the one who you need. He's the one who can grant forgiveness of sin. The baptism that I provide is exterior. The baptism he will provide is an inward reality of what we're expressing outwardly here with water baptism. He can only do that. And then in John's preaching, as I'm running out of time here this morning, there's also the part that we don't like is the note of judgment. Um, And he sounds that off very clearly at the beginning of his sermon. Uh, If you remember, uh, remember last week, he begins his sermon, you brood of vipers. And he he sort of, he, he directs his judgment on the religious elite. Um, on those that grew up in the system, so to speak. Which I would bet is probably a lot of us. So these are words I think we need to take to heart as well. And, And he looks at these people and the judgment that he begins to tell them. He says, listen, if you think that your salvation is a sure thing because you're children of Abraham... And because you have a religious lineage and because you've done all the church events and all the right things along the way, and now God is obligated to usher you into his kingdom, you've got it all wrong. Your pedigree doesn't earn you favor with him. In fact, he can just, he's like in the river, he can just call up these rocks and make for himself children of God. That's how big and powerful our God is. And so John strikes this note of judgment because he's trying to rattle them out of their normative religious sensibilities that says, well, I'm a good person and I've done all the things, and now God is obligated to give me good things too. And he calls them a brood of vipers. And we hear that and we're like, ugh, and if it's your first Sunday here, like, oh, I don't like these sermons, these are not good, right? But you have, to, you have to strike the note of judgment so that we have an understanding of our need for a savior to come that will give us the rescue that we so desperately need. If I can't do it on my own, and it doesn't matter my lineage, it doesn't matter how hard I try, but I need someone else to come and do that which I could never do, it opens our hearts toward the one whom John is preparing the way for us to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Your ritual will not save you, he says. Your orthodoxy will not save you. And then he uses this other strong analogy, he says in verse 16, that Christ, when he comes, he's coming with a winnowing fork in his hands. 
In other words, this, this, this agrarian analogy, there's this grain, we've got to get to the grain. And so there's this, it's trampled under the foot of oxen and then it's thrown up and there's chaff, which is the worthless stuff. And then there's the grain, which is the good stuff. The grain is heavier, so it falls down and the chaff is blown away and gone forever. He says, that's the work Jesus is gonna do. And he knows those who truly are his because they are the grain and he's gonna gather for himself a people who respond to his message of the good news of the gospel and he will gather for them and be their savior forever. But the ones who reject it and don't see it, they will just go away and burn up and he uses this judgment language. And it's not politically correct and I know it's brimstone sounding, but John is rattling our sensibilities and he's preparing us to receive the true Messiah that's to come so that when the proclamation of the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that did what we, what we could not do for ourselves hits our hearts, we embrace him in love. And the question that like Elijah, John is doing here, he's driving us to a decision. Which are you? Wheat or chaff. But in the midst of what seems like, ugh, I don't like that, that's tough. There's, there is a theme of promise in the middle of this. A promise to those who sincerely confess their sins and run to this Messiah whom he is pointing to, we then find refuge from our sin. We're purified and forgiven from our sin and we're delivered from its penalty and from its power in our lives. And the urgency is the catalyst that helps us run to and ready us to see our savior. That's what John's doing. Now my final point here. So he is uh, clear and aware of the expectations and the questions that the culture and the people are asking him. He is crystal clear in his presentation and obviously um, he's bold in his proclamation of the gospel. He seems fearless. He's this fearless preacher of righteousness. Now, uh, catch this. I don't want you to just think of John the Baptist as just some crazy, weird guy that he's just on the fringes and he's kind of got his uniform and he's got his belt on and he's eating weird things and he really just kind of likes uh, being harsh and rude and, and kind of like the shock jock of prophets and preachers. And he goes home at the end of the day and it's like, Phew, I gave him the brood of viper sermon. You should have seen how they looked at me that day. That was pretty awesome. I think next time I get up there, I'm gonna do the winnowing fork one. It's really gonna jar him. It's gonna be awesome. Get a lot of prep. No, he's not like that. That's not, the, that's not what's happening here. Um, he's not trying to just put this on because he just likes saying hard things. The picture of John the Baptist as I was pondering this and thinking of this is this. There's, there's a building on fire. Floors one, two, and three are burning. It's a high rise. Um, and John runs in. And he runs up the stairs. He has an urgency. And he has a message because he knows help is coming. 
He knows the rescuer is coming. And there are people, they're not wanting to move. They're just wanting to stay where they're at because they think it's all just gonna go away and everything's gonna be fine. Well, uh, I know this person, he's gonna help you. He says, no, he's sounding the alarm and he runs to the top and he says, you need to turn, you need to come with me. There's a rescuer that's coming and it's urgent and there's no time to lose. Come with me. And he's pleading with them. He's trying to wake them up out of their religious sleep. And he's saying it's a matter of life and death. That's why he's talking like this, because he wants the people to respond and be ready to embrace the rescue that's coming to them and not miss it. So the question I think John's preaching rattles in my mind is not, do you go to church? Are you kind of a good person? Are you say the nice things? The question that John wants us to grapple with and drive to decision is, do you know the one that's coming, the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you met him? I just baptized with water. He's coming. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. And he's real. And we've been waiting for him our whole lives. And he's readying a people. He says, are you saved? Receive the good news. This is who Jesus is, Matthew 18, 12 through 14. As I close. <laughs> if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, Truly, I say to you, he rejoices, it, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. He's a God that comes for the one. This one that is coming, he wants to rescue even just one you might be the one today. And there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 that just go business as usual and don't respond and say, I'll be fine. John's preaching is marked with gravity. I fear sometimes my preaching isn't grave enough. Her prone to funny stories and nice, safe, packaged messages. John's preaching is marked with clarity. He gets right to it. There's no misinterpreting what he's trying to get at. And it's marked with passionate urgency. He's saying, respond to the one that's coming, the Lord Jesus Christ. God commands all men everywhere to repent so would you heed the words of John and repent so that you would be readied for the forgiveness of our Messiah that has come, the one that will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, the one who would leave the 99 out of the one that is straying and say, I need and I have to go after that one because he's mine and I will go to great lengths to bring him back. And there is much rejoicing in heaven over people that respond to the message of the gospel, that repent, that don't try to take glory for their own, 
that say, Jesus has done it all. He is my savior. He is my rescuer. I'm not even fit to untie the thong and a sandal, but for some reason he wants me. Praise God, he has rescued me. That's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray together, church. Lord, thank you that you are a God that rejoices in the lost that are found. Thank you that you were not afraid through your word to show us the gravity and the need of forgiveness that we have in our lives. And thank you, God, that you are gathering to yourself a people. Though we are unworthy and undeserving of it, yet still you choose to love us and to give us the good news of the saving grace of the gospel on our lives. And you're forming us into a people. Lord, may we have the heart and mind attitude like John the Baptist that I must decrease and he must increase. He is our great savior. Lord, I pray for the one that might be in here today that feels far from you, that has gone astray, that it feels like that one sheep and they heard the, the urgency of John's preaching to come. Jesus, thank you that you rescue, that you forgive, and that you seek us out, and that you find us in our time of need. And so God, for that one that has wandered away, Lord, would you bring them back in your grace and your mercy. And Lord, may there be great rejoicing in heaven. You are a God who rescues and saves. Thank you for your promises. We love you and trust you. In Christ's name. Amen. Church, let's stand. Worship him.